Folks, welcome to a special edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. It's my honor today to uh, have on the program uh, Bay Area drummer Bill Vitt. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you. I wanted to ask you, where did you grow up uh, in high school? Uh, Sacramento. You were up in cow country up there. In cow country. Is that what you said, cow country? Cow country, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess you could, some people go. But yeah, I went to high school there and uh, then moved to uh, uh, Marin County. So in high school, what, who were the, did you originally start off playing drums or, or did you, were you, did you play other instruments as well? I started playing piano when I was about five. My father was a uh, jazz musician and so he started me on piano when I was really young and picked up the drums uh, when I was about a sophomore in high school. When, uh, when you say he was a jazz musician, did he, was he just a local guy playing acts in town or did he actually go on, was he with people, did he go out on the road? Uh, when he was young, he went out with a couple of people and then, uh, you know, myself and two brothers, so once he got settled in the family thing, uh, he played locally, uh, you know, he played at this, uh, big nightclub, this is back kind of in the end of the big band days, and he had a big band. And they had this gig for a long time. I think he played five or six nights a week. Yeah, but it was the old style, you know, the big dinner club with a big band and all that kind of stuff. But uh, but he continued to play, uh, you know, right up until he passed away a few years ago. He was always active. And he gave you a, a, a not only an appreciation for music, but like an understanding, a, a discipline to the craft, the amount of work that you had to put into it? Yeah, and he also told me, whatever you do, don't be a musician. <laughs> <laughs> you listened to that real well. <laughs> so that uh, maybe he really meant knowing that I would not do anything he told me to do, that maybe he wanted me to be a musician, I don't know. How did, did you, uh, so when you started playing drums, when did you actually transition over to start, when did you get your first uh, trap, first kit? Chevy for a set of drums, and I think I was a sophomore in high school. Oh, that's great. And then started immediately playing gigs. And, and, and what do you, like, what kind of, were you guys, was it the experimentative, experimentative kind of stuff, or were you just playing standards at that point, or what were you trying to, what were you listening to at that time, and were you trying to emulate that? Well, there were a couple different things. Uh, I actually played in a surf band when I first started, and Mike Clark, the drummer that lives in New York right now, who's a famous drummer in New York. Yeah, no, I, actually, I just interviewed Mike. You're kidding. No, I, we, we were doing a three-part series. I, I, that guy's classic. No, I, it's so funny you brought him up. Yeah, and uh, in fact, we were buddies in Sacramento. Oh, that's great. He took my place, and the band was called the Dell Counts. And then he took my place in that band, and I moved to L.A. for three years in pursuit of being a studio musician, which I, that's what I did when I was down there. I did sessions and rarely played a gig. Uh, just worked, you know, in the studios. But, uh, yeah, and also, uh, you know, I'd get gigs uh, playing, you know, with trio standards and uh, uh, mostly R&B bands. Uh you know, like the steady gig six nights a week or so we'd get when Sacramento had all the, uh, Sacramento used to have a lot of nightclubs with live music seven nights a week. And, uh, you know, they were packed. And so there were a lot of gigs. And most of those were more of the R&B kind of deal. Like real, real, real rhythm and blues, though, not like Sweet Soul. I mean, we were just talking about like like, like blues. Yeah, I mean, the, the really funky soul the type of blues, Motown kind of stuff. And a lot of Ray Charles and uh, James Brown, that sort of thing. Oh, really? So those guys, I was going to ask you, did it have something to do with the idea like they wanted to have a, uh, a real vibrant night scene because of the political, because of the po po politicians up there? Why was it such a vibrant, uh, I don't think of Sacramento now, I haven't been there, but um, for you to say that, I'm just wondering why it was like that. Well, I don't know, I don't think there was any correlation with the politics uh, you know, that's the capital and that little scene downtown. And most of the clubs 
ten very active nightclubs, the Tropicana, and I, I forget the other ones, but, uh, you know, they had really top-notch, you know, back in the day, uh, that the, before the concert thing really got going, uh, you know, the big outdoor shows, uh, there were a lot of bands that were on the road all the time, like the Green Men that Howard Wales was in for a long time, and I was in a band called the Rogues, and uh, blah, 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 but, you know, it, it, musician would usually play one of those bands and there was a circuit so you're on the road all the time you play six weeks in Honolulu and six weeks wherever and just uh, keep moving around but it, you know at the time that was uh, the clubs in Sacramento were um, it, it, they were packed I mean you know seven nights a week and you could just run around town and hear you know ten different bands uh, really good bands so, you know, that was, uh, that actually went all the way up until I think when Mad kind of, uh, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, when that whole thing started, that kind of, uh, most of those nightclubs collapsed because they just couldn't draw as many people uh, to support having, you know, really good musicians. But, yeah, Sacramento was a very, very uh, hot place. I mean, a musician could work seven nights a week easy and make good bucks playing in nightclubs. I, I really, then, actually, it's so classic. You you it, you bring that up. I, I'm not going to, you got to tell me about, uh, when did you first meet Mike Clark? Or I, mean, you I guys, met him in Sacramento, and uh, he was uh, just kind of starting out, kind of like me, and uh, there was another guy named Ned Eldridge who was a guitar player that led the band, the Delcons, that we were both in. And uh, anyway, and uh, I think Ned lives in Katati now. And, but anyway, he was a real good guitar player. And uh, so, and then Mike said one day, he said, I'm going to move to New York and play jazz. And that's exactly what he did. And after a few years, he, when he got the gig with Herbie Hancock, that set him off. So, but, uh, you know, back then, uh, there was a lot of gigs. I mean, I, I made a living. I was married and uh, was full-time student. I've been living just playing nightclubs at night. You know, they, there were just so much going on, you know. He's like when you so, would go to like if you would go to Honolulu for six weeks at a time. Would you be playing the same sets every night? How would it would it would it, would, it, would, it, would you change it up, or are you essentially just playing the a very a very standard set? Pretty much standard, you know, R and B stuff. Uh, uh, for example, I, I think the first time I went on the road, the first gig was in uh, in uh, Honolulu, uh, an enormous nightclub, uh, and six weeks there. Then we went to Reno for six weeks. We played at the Hilton, San Francisco airport. <laughs> uh, just you know, just always moving along. We played in Las Vegas a few times at the Fremont Hotel, and there was another club called the Warehouse that we played at in Las Vegas. And uh, actually, Stone was playing right across the street before they got their record deal. So, you know, the, back then, the bands were still uh, nightclub-style bands, just kind of moving around, and uh, you know, you had an agent. And they, they, they always kept this book, you know. Uh, if you wanted to play seven nights, that wasn't a problem. You had a good band. And, you know, back then, the bands were pretty much R&B-oriented. A lot of them had a couple of horns and uh, once well percussionists. And uh, most of the bands had, uh, you know, a B3 player. The Hammond organ was a big deal back then. And But, you know, standard uh, Motown, uh, soul kind of stuff. And uh, so it wasn't, you know, a solid agenda, so to speak. It was uh, pretty much what the people wanted to hear. And, you know, sometimes we'd have to play songs like Louie Louie, which was not much fun. But, uh, <laughs> no, you know, I'm trying to get a... A are we talking like early early sixties? Right? What, what time period are we in at this point? This would be oh, let's see, probably from sixty. Well, I, the nightclub thing in Sacramento, I started in about sixty three, and then I got a gig on the road, and uh, I think I went out in about sixty four, something like that. Who did you get the gig with? If you don't, can I ask that? The first gig I got with with a band called the Rogues, which was an R&B band. How do you spell that? I got a gig with a band called 
and, and the chessmen. And they were a real hot, uh, you know, Las Vegas, uh, Nevada act. You know, we played a lot of casino gigs. and uh, But we also played uh, other agendas also. We danced music, but they also did a show. Uh, you know, it's like a show band. That's what they were called back then. So anyway, and they were very well established and very well known. And they had a good, a very good agent that kept them on really good gigs all the time. And I stuck with them, I don't know, for a year, year and a half. And I just got tired of being on the road. And then I, I moved to L.A. for three years and then moved back up here. And I immediately uh, went to work with Michael Bloomfield when I moved back up north. And then... Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to jump too far ahead. Because, you know, it's okay. funny. I, 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 Bill, I looked up your... I mean, I looked you up online and it is like... I mean, I'm, I was just so excited to be able to do to be able to talk about you and your career because there really isn't a lot out there. I mean, they they give some discographies, and I know that the there's that uh, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff that you're doing now. But the 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 truth is, it's like the early part of your career is somewhat shrouded. So I'm just trying to get an idea of to set the table for it. Like in L.A., Motown. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. Motown had not moved from Detroit to Los Angeles when you were doing studio gigs down there at that point, had they? Uh, they had just, I think they, what was it, 68, something like that, they moved down to L.A. Because I remember there were these two brothers called the Paris Brothers that I did sessions for. And they told me uh, uh, that Motown was moving to L.A. And uh, it was really funny because I, Said, oh, that's great, and because uh, I, I remember they said James Jameson is uh, moving out here, and you know he's ended up living in a motel, and Motown really didn't help not much. But um, I don't know whether this is true or not. But they told me that they had started a white section in Motown, and Pat Boone was the first one they signed. No way. That's what I thought. Oh, so I don't know whether that's true. <laughs> That's a great. If that's true, that's a great. I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> but that's uh, that's what I was told. But uh, oh. yeah, and that, that, you know another guy that really. I'll tell you what. In L.A. back then, everybody warned me. They said uh, there's a very tight knit clique of studio musicians down there, and it's just virtually impossible to get in. Uh, you know, being an outsider like myself, and I really lucked out. Um, I was uh, doing a lot of demo sessions for Don Costa, who uh, did a lot of, in fact, he built a studio, and it was primarily for Frank Sinatra. They had a big room where they could actually, uh, you know, hold a whole symphony orchestra. It was really a neat studio. Sure. It was on, uh, oh, God, La Cienega. And uh, anyway, I did a lot of sessions there, and one day, Edie Gourmet walked into the control booth and said, oh, I want that drummer on my new album. So that was my first big break. Wow. I got to do an album with Edie Gourmet, and I, you know, I was pretty young. And so I, that kind of set things off. And then, uh, so like, you know, I got a, a lot more work off that, and then I decided that I would rather live up here, and then I came up here in 68, I think it was. But... Uh, well, you know, I was going to say, when you... When you got, when you moved back to the Bay Area, uh, I was curious. You, you mentioned Michael Bloomfield, and I, I see I, that's something I didn't even realize that you collaborated with him. But I was going to ask, did you get a chance to play at uh, places like uh, Jimbo's Bop City and, and the Both And up there? What, what was the name of the place? Bop City. Bop Jimbo's Bop City, like up up in the up in in, in San Francisco. In the, oh yeah. You know, I don't remember playing there. Right. The name kind of rings a bell, but uh, most of the places I played in the city were uh, the Fillmore, the Winterland, Family Dog, those kind of places. So when you moved up to San Francisco, uh, were you, again, were you sort of, it, it wasn't nearly as sort of, like you said, when you moved to Southern California, very tight-knit, studio musicians, hard to break in. San Francisco, what was the scene, what, what were they telling you about it, and why would why did you gravitate to to, to go back there? Uh, because I, I 
like it up here a lot better, and I, I just like the vibe. Mm-hmm. And when I came back up here, you know, the hippie thing, it just hit full tilt. And, you know, L.A. is just different, you know. And so when I came back up here, I, in fact, after the Bloomfield band, I got into the uh, Sons of Chaplin, which had changed her name to uh, Yogi Clem at the time. And uh, it was just totally different. I'll give you a real quick example. Uh, I did a lot of studio work in the Bay Area when I got up there also. And in L.A., when you go into a studio, it was pretty much uh, mandatory that you do, I think it was two songs in three hours, and you'd fill out a tax form. And most of the stuff, the master uh, sessions in L.A., were charted, so you'd, you'd read the, the parts. And when I got to San Francisco, I think one of the first albums I played on, it took us a year to do the album, and it was on Columbia Records. <laughs> It took a year. <laughs> totally it took a year. Vibe, that you, know you could I mean? not. You just basically in- encapsulated the difference between the two, the Bay Area and Southern California, right there. Yeah, and I decided I liked the laid back style a lot better. <laughs> I stayed here. I I actually tried to move back to LA. Uh, I went out for three months, a few years later, and and decided again that no, nah, not for me. Although I'm going down there. Uh, in a few weeks to do a new CD because I, I do have a good recording set up down there. So I wanted to, you know, because I've, I've interviewed a ton. I mean, you know, I mean, a most of the of the jazz guys that I have interviewed, um, uh, guys like uh, Calvin Keys and and other other Jerry Hahn, guys like that. They yeah. all talked about the Fillmore District. Uh, you know, having these sort of all night, they they play all night, all night jam sessions, and then they wouldn't be able to serve liquor from like two to six in the morning, and then right. it would reopen at six a.m. with these organ trios, uh, right. Richard Groove Holmes and Merle Saunders, and and I just was wondering if you ever had had a chance to uh, sit in in those sessions or even go in and check out that because it just seemed like music was playing all the time and right. it was just always yeah. going on. Yeah, it's like I remember. Now you brought that up. Minnie's Can Do Club, and uh, there, you know, and of course, the both Ann was around then. But my experience with that was mostly when I was in Sacramento. I played. Uh, there was a place called Dave's Soul Kitchen, yeah, and it was also called the Off Broadway, and it was in Oak Park. And when they had the race riots and all that, that was right in the center of that. And I played there on and off for many, many years. And I would get off one gig at two in the morning and run over there. And I think I was the only white guy in the, any of the bands. And uh, so anyway, it started uh, organ trio. There was a, a B3. Who, who uh, were you playing club. with? Do you, can I ask you who you were playing with? Uh, the people that were the house band, Soul Dave was the organ player. I don't think you'd know these people. Right. Uh, they were really good. That's where I really learned how to play jazz and, you know, really got into it. But it started with a trio, organ trio, and then uh, it, the place would be packed by 2.30 in the morning. Oh, that's packed awesome. with people coming off gigs and people, uh, they were coming through town that sat in and uh, it was really good experience for me. And then I'd get off that gig at 8 in the morning and, you know, wander out the front door and there were people <laughs> going to you going for the early session at church? No, <laughs> I went home and went to bed. Yeah, right, 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 right. You know, I had I had all the energy. I could do that. I could play a five-hour gig and then go play all night at Dave's Soul Kitchen. But that's where I really learned how to uh, play. I mean, there's no doctor's degree or anything like that to, to match uh, my experience at that place. Can you? And I, yeah. I, I actually went through there uh, oh about twenty years ago and. Uh, sure enough, it was still open, and I went in, sat in, and, and I, I don't know if it's open anymore. I haven't been there for a long time, but, but that was kind of where I really learned how to play. When, when you okay. see, when, I just you know, it was like a, you had to play. You that's know, what I'm like, saying. I, I wanted yeah. to, I wanted you to articulate it from from a musician's point of view. When you say I really learned how to play, it meant that you were up on the bandstand and you had it, and you had it. If you had something to say, you better say it, right? Yeah. And being the only white guy, that that, that was uh, 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 extra pressure, you know. But once, you know, once I got into it and uh, 
worked out, I, it was just great. I, I always looked forward to going to that gig because the, the music was so soulful, you know, and it was just really cool. And there was a club in L.A. too when I lived in L.A. called the Parisian Room. And I'm trying to remember the street that was on. But anyway, it's a famous after-hours place. And, uh, you know, all-black club that, I, that had Monday night jam sessions. And I'd go down there and sit in. And uh, the first time I sat in, they wanted to get me off the stage immediately. <laughs> and so they played, they played a tune that was like super up-tempo, you know. Oh, and man. that would, they thought, well, after about four bars of that, he'll, you know, he'll just leave. Right. <laughs> but luckily, I, I made it through. And I uh, made the grade. So that was a cool place to go jam also. So you, you uh, this is great. We're talking to Bill Vitt, um, Bay Area uh, drummer, and um, and it's just it's it, it's just a pleasure to be with you today. I just wanted to, um, so you you get to the to the to the Bay Area, and you knew Michael Bloomfield um, prior to that. How did you wind up with him? Uh, I had a girlfriend who was a musician that was in a band called the Ace of Cups. Okay, that were a hot band back then. Um, and she introduced me to Michael, and she said he was looking for a drummer, and I auditioned, and uh, John Kahn was in the band. And John and I, you know, as you probably know, uh, after that, we did a lot of studio work together and played in a lot of bands together. We, were, uh, we just played very well together, and so we uh, did a lot of gigs together, and that was the start of our, you know, bass drum thing that we... So wait, so so John was playing with with Michael Bloomfield and 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 you got you were brought into the band and and uh, who else was in was it just was it a was there were there was there a horn section as well or no? Uh, some of the time, yeah. In fact, people like Bill Jukes and uh, Ron Stallings and uh, you know people like that were usually the horn player. But what it was, it was kind of the uh, the electric flag. When Buddy Miles left that band, that's right. when I came in. Oh, okay. so, I got, yeah, and Harvey Brooks was on bass. Yeah, he, actually, Harvey had left already when I joined the band, and then it changed names to Michael Bloomfield Band. Uh, but Nick Bravenitis was, you know, one of the main guys in the band. He did a lot of the writing and, you know, also produced other people that I played on records with, like Brewer and Shipley and Danny Cox, people like that, the Columbia Records. And uh, Nick was a really good producer, and he's still around. I, I saw him a couple of years ago. You know, it's just it's so funny. I, I was just listening to this album, and I uh, uh, Danny Cox, there's a picture of him on a beach with a horse, and you're yeah, drumming that, on that album. That's the album I played on, right? What a great album, and John's on bass. I think Jerry plays on that, too, actually. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people on that album, actually. So when you and, when you and John first, I just this is so important for musical history, Bill. I mean, as best you can, was it when you and John? I know John loved James Jamerson and, and Chuck Rainey, and he was he, you know he he himself was he was a peer group with those guys. Yeah. But w w when you first started collaborating musically, was it an instant kind of chemistry? How did you guys n get into such a good sync together? Uh, we just clicked, you know, right off. And we had the same interests, you know, we were both, you know, like you say, he, James Jameson was his uh, guy, and I love James Jameson, and we just had a very common interests. We both lived in Forest Knolls at the time in Marin, so we went, you know, we always rode to gigs and sessions together, and we became, you know, great friends, and blah, blah, blah. And actually, I got him into uh, the Garcia Band to go back again, uh, which... A lot of people don't know this, but Howard Wales and I were kind of like a house band at the old Matrix on Fillmore, which I don't know. There, there was another Matrix in North Beach, uh, but the, the original Matrix, and it was just a listening club. Nobody danced, and they had a built-in four-track studio. And uh, so we'd play, we, you know, Freddie King, James Cotton, whoever came through, we'd back them up. And then we 
John Kahn, and I got John Kahn into the band, and then uh, we, uh, you know, we had a quartet going, and uh, it, you know, it changed. Well, no, the 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 album. Uh, there was an album, Hootero, obviously, but then there was also a, a release called Side Trips. Um, yeah. Where. Yeah, that- uh, Exactly. Tony Saunders, uh, when I interviewed him, he talked about there were these huge pillows on the floor, and he would just yeah. he would just camp out and, and watch the music until all that. It almost seems like it. It doesn't seem real, Bill. It doesn't yeah. seem like it even really happened. It, it was a real psychedelic kind of place, and uh, the, the the really cool thing about it, it was like I say, it was a listening club, so people come in and listen. You know, Santana when Tower of Power first got together. All those people would come sit in, you know, it was just a, a great meeting place for musicians to play, and uh, uh, the, the owners were really cool guys, and it, it, it was just a lot of fun. And, of course, we recorded uh, every night. We got, you know, a copy of whatever we played, and I, unfortunately, I, uh, I got ripped off. I had boxes of those tapes, and uh, I rented out a house to somebody years ago and when they moved out I realized they'd run off my uh, yeah, that really I don't you know what I'm, I really I, that makes my blood boil but I just don't want to turn the in- interview to a negative tone that sucks yeah that really sucks yeah I agree but how then, you often know, I got <laughs> how so <laughs> I mean did you guys had like like the whales um uh the whales vit drum organ and then eventually Jerry set was Jerry just sitting in as a guest, or did you guys have a regular gig at the Matrix? Well, he, first he sat in, and, you know, it's really loose. We never rehearsed. It was just kind of a jam band, and, you know, uh, uh, you know it'd be called the Wales Garcia Band, and then when Howard left, it'd be Saunders Garcia, and then I think it went to just Jerry Garcia Band. And, but, uh, you know, I, I was in the band four years, and we never rehearsed. We, we just play off the wall, or... Uh, in the back room yeah. before the gig, we say, "Oh, we've got a new Stevie Wonder tune. Let's try that tonight." <laughs> they run through the changes, but uh, it's real loose. And you know, Martin Fierro and uh, all the classic Bay Area musicians uh, would sit in with us. Did uh, uh, did guys like Louis Gasca ever come in and play? Yeah, I remember Louis coming in, and you know, Armando Peraza played with us for a while. He was in the band, and uh, you know, Tom Fogarty, of course, he played with us a lot. Sarah Falcher, who was a very good singer from Texas, and of course Martin played with us on and off a lot. Yeah, he was he was a spectacular uh, uh, flute, fl- flautist and, and horn player as well. I, I when you going back to Sacramento, when you said you learned how to play jazz, did you learn changes at that point? Well, you know, I'm a I studied piano, and I was actually a music major in college, so uh, you know, I had a pretty good background. And in fact, I still play uh, keyboard a lot. And on my CDs, ninety percent of the parts I do on synthesizer. And I'll bring Tony Saunders in or Phil Wood to do some horn parts or whatever, and uh, whatever singer I use. But before you end the car, uh, uh, our interview, I'd like to tell you about who's going to be on the next one. But we'll please do, that. yeah. But that's yeah, that's pretty much. I when I was in Sacramento, I mean, I literally played gigs every night, uh, and then after hours a lot. So I, I was real busy. Did you um, did you looking back on it, um, you were essentially the first generation of of the you know whatever you want to call it, the first generation of Bay Area musician that that uh, you know sort of played off the wall, psychedelic rock with, uh, but it was a mixture, there was a, there was a Latin, lat, heavy Latin influences, with like the Louis Gasca and the Martin Fierro, and you also had, you had Cannonball Adderley, you also had uh, Cal Jader, Armando Peraza, the sort of the, the, the Latin, the, the Mambo in the West, you had all this fusing of music coming together at the same time, and, right. and I just, it, it, is, was there a catalyst that spawned this, uh, or, or, or could you would you just say here that it was just luck that you and John Cowan wound up, and Michael Bloomfield, and all these people wound up in the same place at the same time? And how does that, how do you account for all of it? You know, my daughter's been asking me that for years. <laughs> what really happened back then? What's that? I I tell her, you know, I don't know. It just happened. 
kind of met it once in the same place. And Bill, Bill, do me. I got to flip the tape here. Uh, hold with me one second. I don't want to waste this. Okay, hold on. All right. Yeah. All right, Bill, take it away. I'm sorry about that interruption there. No problem. So you, you, you were talking about uh, uh, just sort of uh, trying to explain this to your daughter for so many years, but in, can, you, can, you, can you do as best you can to try to explain that? Well, <laughs> I don't even know if I know myself, but um, I think, you know, in my take on, on that whole thing, because, you know, I lived in L.A. for three years, and when I came back up here, Everything had changed. Everybody, you know, there were all these great concerts going on, and all these people that dropped out and tuned in and all that kind of stuff. And it was just like this, it was like a great awakening or something, especially after experiencing the uh, 50s, which was just dead. You know, nothing going on. Uh, just boring, boring, boring. So anyway, it was just a, a revolution. You know, that's the way I, I saw it. And it was great. Everybody was happy-go-lucky and having fun and lots of music. And um, I, I wish I would have had more time to get involved in the other parts, but, but I was, you know, playing all the time. So I was busy and trying to make a living, you know. So uh, I was playing, you know, probably 80% of the time. I didn't have time to get involved in demonstrations and things like that that were really a part of that whole thing. So uh, it was just a, a wonderful time, and I, I just, I don't know, it, it's almost like it was a, a different lifetime, you know what I mean? It was just Thank, I'm just, you know, uh, you should feel fortunate. The way you talk about the 50s being dead, um, and I, it didn't strike me as sort of like in nowadays where in certain parts of the country, and especially in the media that we have, it's like this sort of, it's the end of the world. Everything is the end of the world. There's a, there's a crisis. But the 50s was more just sort of dull and boring, and it was your generation saying, no, 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 we're bringing some serious energy to the, we want to bring some life back into life. Right. I, I, it, that's different than now when there's just sort of this pervading pessimism that we really have, we have too many rocks in the satchel and that we're sort of tilting backward and, and, and we, we've kind of become unbalanced. It seemed to me, um, there wasn't nearly uh, the financial uh, sort of gravity that went on. I mean, I, I listened back to when you guys, you know, even the Garcia Saunders uh, stuff, uh, those the, the legendary uh, Keystone shows. Uh, you know, you guys were up for doing five-minute space jams, and then it, it wasn't, everything wasn't predicated on the dollar. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Right, yeah. No, it's true. It, it was just a whole different thing. Of it. Just a small example is the uh, the way bands, uh, you know, whether it was a Garcia band, any band that I played with. I played with a lot of bands back then, different bands. But um, there was no uh, organization. But like, if, for example, if you were in L.A. in a band, it would be the leader would take uh, a bigger cut then you might have an agent, and it was more like a business thing, you know. And up here, it was different. It was just everybody split everything evenly. And even the equipment guys in some of the bands, you know, we, we were like a little family. And it, it was just such a, you know, a wonderful feeling. Uh, and there was a lot more trust, and there wasn't all this heavy stuff going on like there is today, and the middle class disappearing, which is... Uh, back then, you know, those, they were still large middle class, and they were just, I don't know, it was just a safer, uh, a better environment. And uh, I i don't know, it's, it was just a wonderful time. I, you know, I don't know what happened, <laughs> but it stopped. It, 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 it stopped big time. There's a whole lot of, we can go into, we could talk for days about that, but I did, you know, when you, what were some of the, other bands in the in the Bay Area that you played with, and I think the question I had was like, like you said, the Fillmore and and um, some of these guys, uh, Bill Graham, uh, Bill, uh, other promoters in the area, they, they did a very, from my eye, they did a very savvy job of putting maybe like a, a Sons of Ch Champlin uh, with uh, with like a Malo or a El Chicano, so they and then also like a Sly and the Family Stone, so it would be all on the same bill, 
and you would have, so you would attract a black audience, uh, uh, a Chicano audience, and a, a, a white audience. And it, right. would, it would be done very, sa- is that is that kind of, the, were you on bills like that, where there was a lot of mix? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be Miles Davis and Quicksilver. You, you never knew. Uh, and I kind of liked that. I really did, because it, it kind of, especially, you know, if they had uh, uh, Miles at the Fillmore, you know, so all of a sudden you've got all these jazz lovers. And, you know, of course, Miles was always way ahead of everybody else. So <laughs> every time you see Miles, he'd be a step of, a step ahead of everybody else, and he'd hire young musicians. And, and, and that was great, because then you'd have, you know, you might have uh, uh, Aretha Franklin or whoever, but it, it, it was a nice blend of all these different things. And I think that's what made it uh, those, those uh, venues really interesting. And the, uh, Walter Hawkins singers might be. I, it, we were on the bill with them once, and you know, there's just this, uh, a lot of different things going on, a lot of color. And I, I really miss that because it seems like uh, these days they kind of try to match that kind of. You know, if you got a New Orleans venue and you've got the Neville Brothers and the Radiators, and the, uh, you know, the same kind of. Exactly. No, it's all like okay. If you like, if you like soul, then this is what you want to listen to. If you like rock, this is what you want to listen to. If you like uh, rap, then this is what you want to listen But it's not a mix, it's not a variation. So therefore, people are only hearing what they think they're supposed to be hearing as opposed to what they really should be hearing. You're right. I agree with that. And I, I, I think, like, you know, Miles is an example. It, it really uh, opened a lot of binds because, of, you know, the hippie group that would come to hear uh, Starship and, you know, if somebody like Miles was on the same bill with him, all of a sudden they're exposed to Miles Davis and they're going, wow, you know, why didn't I get turned on to this guy before? Because they couldn't, because he, you know, uh, Bill Graham just had this really cool thing about putting the right things together and enlightening people on different kinds of music. I have a lot of respect for him. Absolutely, you know, and, and the more, you know, you know, he just, it, he seemed to be, as Miles was musically, Bill was ahead of his time uh, as a producer, because that to me was, of course he also had the talent out there as well, but, you know, like, when you, um, how much uh, of an influence, um, you know, I guess, let me see, what, I'm, what am I really trying to focus on here? Yeah, that, that, my question was this. What was your first interaction with uh, the Fantasy Records label, the the, the Zant, Saul Zants, and and how is that how you met Fogarty? Or I was just wondering how you how you got involved with Fantasy Records. Okay, the first fantasy experience I had was when I was still living in Sacramento and going to school there. Um, I was playing with a trio called the Wayside Trio, and they had just won the state championship of uh, folk singers. And so anyway, we had this really good gig at uh, this big place in Sacramento, three nights a week, I think. And it was kind of like a big show. It was really a a very cool gig. But anyway, uh, we got an invitation to go to Fantasy Records in San Francisco when they were in San Francisco and record. Wow. And I'll never forget this because it was kind of like this dark area of town. It was late at night. And it was like an old lumber yard. You had to climb over all this lumber and then you get into this really funky building and there was this guy named Max and he was like a true beatnik and this is back when beatniks were in you know the pre sure sure and uh, Max was a real cool guy you know and so he recorded us and the, at the same time there was a band in their recording called the Gollywogs and that uh, they became Freedom's Clearwater but it's it's really funny because I didn't I probably met him because you know we were there at the same time but I, I I never made the correlation later until I you know I met Tom Fogarty and then we were talking about the old fantasy and then, oh my God we were in the same building and forgot that we met or you know it's just like a I never made the connection and so that was my first experience of fantasy and then when they built their studio in uh, Berkeley. I did a lot of work there, and, uh, oh, uh, you know, I was spent a lot, John Conn and I both were there a lot. Can you talk a little bit about just being in that, in that, 
in that environment. It seems like it was one of the, I've talked to Bill Belmont, and I know that Bill didn't really get involved into the mid-70s, but, you know, I, I'm just so fascinated with uh, the fantasy, and there were other jazz labels like Verve and, and, and other labels that it was, to me it seemed that the, the record, it was more, fantasy was more concerned with, with what, they would put out music that stood for their philosophy, that stood for what they believed in, as opposed to necessarily making money. I mean, they wanted to make money, but there was a, a real diverse, um, there there was a real diverse sort of uh, uh, you know collection of, of of music going on there, and, and you could really run into uh, to any musicians just having a cup of coffee and say, hey, you want to come in and, and play on this record with me? I mean, that's kind of the way it seemed like it played out. Yeah, well, I think their first big hit was Vince Guaraldi that actually got them on the map. With Bolasete or just the Cast Your Fate to the Wind stuff? Cast Your Fate to the Wind. That made them some money. And uh, then Creedence Clearwater, uh, of course, just really set them off. So that gave them a lot more freedom to do all these different things. And, you know, they, you know I did, played on a cut Walter Hawkins singers. They had all kinds of different people. I, I met Cannibal Adderley in the control booth there one time. And, you know, he was doing some stuff with them and, you know, all different kinds of things. But uh, you're right, they had the, you know, all the, that was kind of the, the hip underground uh, thing going on. And, and, of course, they had the red records. That was kind of cool. And then they bought up a bunch of other jazz labels, you know, Riverside. Milestone, yeah. Yeah, all those. And uh, cataloged all those. And uh, anyway, so they... Uh, started doing a lot of really uh, different things, and you know. But uh, you know, I haven't been in that place for many, many years, so it's probably changed a lot. I don't know who's over there. I've talked to a couple of the producers over there, but you know, I, I, for for many uh, for many uh, fans of 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 Garcia and, and Saunders band, I mean, the idea that uh, both those guys and John Con, for that matter. Um, they're no longer with us, and yeah. um, and I just I wanted to ask you a little bit about if you could um, about you know just the kind of people they were and um, and 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 the kind of experience that you had with with them playing in that band. The Keystone sessions, those things will you know that's a legacy that'll go on forever. And it, whether you have the vinyl and you have that ridiculous classic gatefold cover where you open it up and everybody's sitting around uh, having a good time and the cops are there and everybody's laughing and or yeah. you have the CDs or whatever it is. Um, that was weird, that picture. <laughs> I actually, now I can go back and try to find you and I know you're in there somewhere. Oh, I'm, I'm sitting right next to Garcia. Yeah, you're there, you're there. But talk about Jerry. I mean, talk about... When you knew him, and, and maybe um, you know some things that that you that that things about Jerry that a lot of people maybe weren't aware of um, that you could that you knew him as a person, you could talk a little bit about. Well, I'll tell you what I was never. Uh, you know, I we came from different music kind of backgrounds and all that, which uh, we just kind of ended up in a band together. But as a person, and I have a lot of respect for his playing. In fact, even more as I start listening to some of these old things that we did, but um, he was uh, just a wonderful human being. He was very, very knowledgeable. Uh, he was very creative. He would, uh, if we were mixing a record, he would be in the control room uh, doodling or drawing little pictures, kind of like Zap comic kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. It was really cool stuff, you know. And uh, But he was just really...
mean, great sense of humor, and he was actually very funny. That's you know, he could bring you, uh, you know, if you're had, we're having a bad night, but, you know, I'd get to the gig, and he would manage to liven me up by, you know, with his humor. So, anyway, that's my take on Jerry Garcia. He was a wonderful guy. How did you, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking at an album here <coughs> on Fantasy. It's, uh, it's, it's Merle Saunders' Fire Up, and there's a picture of you uh, and Merle, and, and Fogarty, and John Kahn, Jerry Garcia, and you do all these great tunes, but there was some, there was a lot of overlap. It's interesting, you're not, you're not on drums on all the tracks. Some of the tracks have, have, have Billy Kreutzman on them, and, and some of them have some other jazz players. Gaylord, Birch, Gaylord Birch's probably on that. Gaylord Birch is on there, and, and, and there were also other, other guys, uh, Je uh, Michael Howe was a guitar player on there and that kind of stuff. But looking back on that, um, is is it is it was it the was it the was it the most special part time of your musical experience or is there something that there was uh, that topped that? Something that topped that? Yeah, I mean, w looking back, was there anything as as as, uh, as did you have? Was that the most fun you've ever had? Well, yeah, that period of time, yeah, and. The thing with me, I was super busy at the time. I was playing with about four different bands and then, you know, doing a lot of recording stuff. And uh, when I, you know, when I started playing with Bill Chaplin, that, that was my priority. I loved that band. And uh, so that, you know, there were a lot of gigs that I missed because I was playing with the Sons and I'd get Bill Kreutzmann or whoever to replace me with the Garcia band. And the Sons was kind of a thing that I, uh, you know, I was really into, we actually rehearsed and did all original songs, or mostly original songs, I should say. But anyway, it was kind of a, a, a you know, it, that was my main thing, and uh, as long as I stayed with them. So you were, with with uh, with Garcia Saunders, you were primarily, like, when you were in town and you could play at the local, local clubs, you'd play with them, but did you travel? Because I did a lot of research, I mean, you go to the Jerry site, it says Bill Vitt, Drummer seventy one to seventy four, but then you then you go dig a little bit deeper and you find that that not all the shows you were on there because you were playing with Bill Chaplin, and right. so were you a uh, like if, if if Garcia Saunders went on the road to the East Coast, did you make trips with them out there or were you mainly the local the drummer for them? I you know what I I did go out with them a few times, but I didn't go to the East Coast with them uh, mostly because I had other obligations, and I really didn't want to leave then. Uh, I, 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 you know, you go out for a while, and then you don't want to go on the road anymore. You just want to stop that. And yeah, you're tired. Exactly. Just, you're exhausted. Yeah, I, I got burned out. Yeah, right, traveling. right, right. So I, I just avoided, uh, if I could, you know, and so I, I didn't play any of those East Coast gigs with them. I stayed local and, you know, had plenty going on here. Because, uh, you know, I, I was on the road when I was young playing with those night, you know, club bands. And, uh, you know, the, the, the only difference was those gigs would last, you know, at least two weeks. At six weeks, I actually played a gig in Portland for a, a whole summer once. Um, but there's these other things, you're doing concerts, you know, you're, you're one city to another, you know, like every day. And, it, you know, it's, it's no fun. Did you? No, but you got to do it, you know. Especially if you got a record deal, and they want got to go up there and pay your dues, you know. Absolutely, no, and and it and it speaks to the business mindset that you were referring to, the way it kind of pervaded that scene back then. But how how much were you? I mean, it's so funny to look back. Um, I mean, it must be even more bizarre for you. But how how much input did you have that fantasy was going to use? Like, why did they decide to choose that run of the Keystone, if you're even aware of it? And how much input did you have on, um, on what tracks wound up on those albums? Because you have, you have Live at the Keystone volumes one and two. Then there, this Keystone Encores came out, and I was just curious as to how much input you had, and and whether you got promo copies of those albums, and whether you actually got paid dues for those albums. Oh yeah, no. The only thing I. No, I still get royalties. Good, myself. good, okay. And, 
Yeah, oh yeah. And, uh, the only thing that I didn't participate in very much was uh, later. Uh, I don't know. I don't like to sit in studios and mix and do that kind of stuff. So I avoided that. Merle, Jerry, and John Kahn were the guys that usually uh, were in the studio mixing and deciding which tunes, because I really didn't care. It was a jam band to me. You know, I, I had other things to do. So I didn't really participate in uh, a lot of that stuff. But on the other hand, you know, we, uh, if there's a song I wanted to do, we'd say, okay, we'd, let's try it. And, you know, not a problem. I, it's, it, the thing is, we had such a different, you know, Merle was like, had a reputation as a jazz player. Um, Jerry had his thing. Uh, I had my thing was kind of a mixed jazz R&B, and John Kahn was, his experience was mostly blues and R&B. So there were all these different things that were blending together, you know, rock and roll and uh, Motown. And, you know, we did Stevie Wonder tunes. We did Bob Dylan tunes, uh, all different kinds of things. So that was, uh, I think a lot of people liked that, that, you know, it wasn't just one area. Yeah, you were you were doing. I mean, you were doing Dylan tunes, Wonder tunes. You also did uh, uh, a lot of uh, reggae, like Jimmy Cliff tunes, and right. And it was, it, you know, it it seemed it, listening back. Uh, it, it's just funny. I I uh, it, I was hoping just I was not going to allow this to pass, but I was hoping you could also just talk a little bit about um, uh, John Kahn. I know you you got you were very close with John and. Um, I, to me, to a lot of people uh, who, who, you know, I was born in 1978. I never even saw The Grateful Dead. I never saw Jerry Garcia Band. So I'm living these through these fantasies. And to, he, he always strikes me as a, as a, as a real character. But, I'm, you know, there's no interviews out there with him. There's no audio aside from his great playing. And I just was hoping you could just spend a couple minutes talking about your buddy John Kahn. Okay. Before I get there, one more thing about the different kinds of music. Go right ahead. Uh, then we'd throw in a song like My Funny Valentine and do a jazz style. See, and, you know, <laughs> that was how diverse the, you know, our, our tunes were. But anyway, on to John Kahn. Um, when I met John, uh, he was married and he had a kid. And uh, like I said before, we both lived in Forest Knowles. And he was from L.A. And... Uh, he had a pretty good reputation, you know, you know, in the blues world and all that. And so anyway, he, I don't know, he was actually, he loved jazz, he loved the blues, R&B and all that. And he also played a little bit of piano and he was, you know, a real musician. Uh, he was like really into it. So uh, that we had in common and... Uh, we just ended up, you know, we were together all the time. We were working together. So, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. He's a pretty laid-back guy. You know, he's actually very laid-back. So, you know, and I'm very laid-back. I, I, he and I could be driving to a gig and not say a word. You know? <laughs> That's, okay, so you you guys were in, you there was, but it wasn't uptight at all. So, I mean, the creative expression uh, it, it, it was just a very relaxed atmosphere. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like you were trying to. There was no power struggles going on. No, no. And uh, you know, we had our ups and downs, but uh, most part, we got along well. In fact, we had uh, years after I left the band, uh, we got together. I was living in Sebastopol at the time, and invited he and his girlfriend over for dinner and hung out. And uh, that's the last time I saw him. And uh, but anyway, he. You know, he was just a, a buddy, you know, and we worked together and, uh, you know. When you, you know, uh, Bill, we'll just take a few more minutes here. You Thank you so much for taking the time today. I just I wanted to ask you, uh, after 75, paint the picture a little bit, uh, mid to late 70s, even into the early 80s, what... Uh, who were you? Who were you gigging with, and and were you on albums? And and because I, I, again, I it's just it's very hard to dig some of this stuff up. And I, I'd like you to paint that picture for us. Well, actually, I retired four times. You did okay four. And, yeah, and I, <laughs> I wish I could do that. I, I moved up to uh, the Healdsburg area, 
in the 70s. Actually, I moved to Sebastopol first and then to Healdsburg. And I just didn't want anything to do with music. A buddy and I bought a little old uh, winery that had been dormant for many years. So I got into winemaking, making wine, and, uh, and then I got, oh, I got to play more music. So I put together a band called Mirage. It was a uh, seven-piece R&B jazz wow. Latin band. What and, year was that? Oh, God, that was in the 80s. Phil okay. Wood was in the band. Jimmy Strasberg that played with Sly and a lot of other people. And You know, I had different players at different times, but it was a real good band. We played the cabaret in it at the beginning, places like that. Sure. Uh, you know, the usual stuff that bands did back then. And then that band broke up, and I did, oh, I, I did take a gig in New Orleans uh, for three and a half months with a really good band. In fact, uh, Nick Daniels, the bass player that used to play with the Neville Brothers, was in the band. Ivan Neville played with us a lot, and, you know, the real New Orleans people. And, uh, but other than that, I, you know, I, I just kind of stopped and then I moved to New Mexico in 06, bought a house there and fixed it up. And then, uh, a year and a half ago, I decided that I got to get back to the music thing. I did work on my piano stuff when I was there and I played with a couple of cover bands just to keep my chops up on keyboard. But, um, I, then I decided I'm going to move back here and go full tilt. And that's what I've been doing. And can I talk about my, let's do it. Let's bit? do it. Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, the last CD I did was called State of Grace. You can find that on CD, baby. Um, in fact, Tony Saunders is playing a couple of cuts on that. And I did most of it on Sin. But I've got another one that I'm, in three weeks, I'm going back to L.A. And uh, I've just got a couple more tunes i got to put together. But I've almost got everything ready. And I was hanging out with Bill Chaplin a few weeks ago. And uh, if he's in town, he's going to help me with the project and probably sing on part or maybe all the vocals. And Tony Saunders said, just call me and I'll be down there in a New York minute. So I'll have Tony on bass and uh, another buddy of mine down there is a great guitar player and uh, a great studio, great engineer, and the guy that co-produced my last one will be working with me again, which we worked very well together. So anyway, I'll have a real nice uh, product out. We'll probably finish in a couple of months. But um, are you going to play? Are you going to play uh, uh, piano or drums on that? I'll play both, and then I do a lot of the parts on the synthesizer. So, and do we have a name? Do we have a name on that album yet? No. Well, let me know when you do, and uh, and 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 Bill will uh, will be sure to uh, you know I'll, I'll give it some good airplay on on my radio show, the Jake Feinberg Show, thirteen thirty a.m. and and uh, you know uh, <laughs> just be great to have you. I mean, are you are you thinking that you uh, have you play have you play live a lot anymore or? or oh yeah, I'm doing. Uh, I'm playing jazz gigs on drums. Um, Judy Hall, I play with her a lot. And Mitch Stein and Tony Saunders, we have a little trio that we play some gigs. Where do you got what, what venues? Uh, it depends. Anything we can get. <laughs> well, believe me, but, if I can find you guys a, a spot, if I can get you down here to the Westward Look or do some sort of jazz session down here, I'd get you down here in a, in a New York minute. I would. Yeah, but the, the thing with uh, Mitch, I don't know if you know Mitch. He's a great pianist, great musician. What's his name? And then Tony. Uh, Mitch Stein. Yeah, I know the name, but not. I don't know him. Yeah. He's playing. Yeah, he's played with everybody. He's he's a heavy, but he and I and Tony really clicked together. And it's just a trio, you know. But it's it's pretty hot, especially you know with Tony on bass. It's just solid as a rock, you know. But um, that's the main thing that I that I'd like to do. And then I I play with another band where I play B uh, three and sing, and it's a good band to practice my tunes, and we get together at least once a week out here in the Valley and Woodacre. So. What's the name of that band? Uh, it really doesn't even have a name. It's just, it's kind of like Garcia band. We just get together and jam. <laughs> we play a few no wonder you can't but, find You can't find it on the internet then. <laughs> well, the name, uh, one of the guys that jams with a lot is uh, Walt Dixon, and he has a band called Sky Blue that, uh, really good band actually, but he always plays guitar with us. Uh, you know, a lot of the really good local musicians. So I, I have a, a place I can go have a band play my tunes and work on them, which is really nice. And I live.
Bill, listen, we we've uh, we 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 did the uh, the early set, and uh, we're going to take a a long intermission. And but maybe uh, you know, as we, as I continue to on this journey along, um, we can come back and if I you know paint continue to paint this picture of a of an important period in our history that not only did you live through, but uh, you actually helped to mold. So I I can't thank you enough for being part of my my program. Hey, it's my pleasure. Take it easy. Okay, thank you. All right now.